0: Congregation, our text this morning is Matthew chapter 14, verse 33. It's Matthew 14, verse 33. And we'll read that verse again. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Beloved of our Lord Jesus Christ, Are you confident that you can meet the trouble that life will bring you in this coming week? Where do you get the courage to go on each day in the face of trials and difficulties? I hope and pray that your answer points back to Jesus Christ. Because if that's where we find our strength, then we're on the right track. Because our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is the Son of God. He is the one who can help us to rise above the storms that sometimes crash all around us. He is the one who can restore peace in my life. So I proclaim to you the word of God under the following theme and points. A storm prompts a confession. You are the Son of God. And we see Jesus' revelation as the Son of God. We see the disciples' confession of the Son of God. And finally, we see our confidence in the Son of God. Beloved of our Lord Jesus Christ, the climax of our reading in Matthew is found in our text. The confession of the disciples in verse 33. Truly you are the Son of God. This was their confession. But it had taken some time for the disciples to come to that realization. It was an awareness that had grown over time. Let's face it. How easy would it have been to believe that this man, Jesus, was also God. He ate and he drank with them. At night, when he was tired, he slept. He displayed emotions. He shows compassion for the crowd. He laughed and he cried, just like you and I. And according to the letter to the Hebrews, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. In his humanity, he was just like us. So it was not very easy for the disciples to come to the conclusion that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. And that's one of the central goals in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew wants to prove to the Christian Jews that Jesus was indeed God's Son. The Messiah that was prophesied to come. And so as the Gospel of Matthew unfolds, Matthew is laying out the evidence that's intended to convince his audience of this very fact. From the very start, in chapter 1 of Matthew, we read the genealogy of Jesus, which highlights Jesus as the son of Abraham, the father of the covenant, and that he was the son of David, the king from whom the eternal king would come. And as we read on in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, introduces us to the wise men, who acknowledge his birth as the coming of the great messianic king. And God himself speaks from heaven at Jesus' baptism. As recorded in Matthew 3, and he declares, This is my beloved Son. And as we go on, immediately following his baptism, Satan challenges God's claim, saying, If you are the Son of God, and in overcoming the temptation of the devil, Jesus proves, yes, he is the Son of God. But in spite of what the disciples have seen and heard, even John the Baptist isn't all that sure. We can read in chapter 11 that he asks Jesus if he should expect another. And Jesus doesn't really answer him directly but responds by pointing out that the blind see and the lame walk. These miraculous signs were foretold in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. There, it's prophesied that this would happen when God brought deliverance for his people. Isaiah says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The Jewish Christians reading Matthew's gospel were familiar with all these Old Testament prophecies. And Matthew is challenging them as he is us. Look, look at the evidence. This is the one that was prophesied about. And now at the beginning of chapter 14. Jesus does something even more significant, more magnificent. He feeds the 5,000. Nothing like this had happened since the wilderness, when God Himself had rained down manna from heaven upon His people. Who was this Jesus who could give bread from heaven like the manna in the wilderness? How was He able to do that? And that's the follow-up lesson for His disciples With the question of how Jesus was able to feed the 5,000 looming in the disciples' minds. Jesus, the Son of God, wants to drive the point home. He wants to teach his disciples the truth. He is God's Son. The one the people of Israel had been waiting for. And Matthew records this story so that those who were not there would also believe this truth. And so Jesus doesn't wait waste any time. He doesn't hesitate to implement this important lesson. We can picture the twelve disciples standing there in awe each with a basket full of leftovers in their hands and Jesus says to them forget about all that food, drop it get into the boat, go to the other side. Our text says he did this immediately he made them get into the boat to cross the lake and the word made in the Greek is very strong Jesus forced or compelled them to get into the boat. He wasn't taking no for an answer. And so with their minds still trying to process what they had just seen, they get into the boat. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Jesus is quite a distance from where the disciples will be landing, across the lake, on the other side. So how was Jesus going to join them later? with the boat out on the lake. Not to mention that the shore of Galilee is rather rugged. To travel it on foot would have been exceedingly difficult. But the disciples don't question their orders. And while they get underway, Jesus dismisses the crowd. It was evening, and after dismissing the crowd, he goes up the mountain alone to pray. Matthew's readers would have identified with this image. Moses went up the mountain on behalf of the people. It was a familiar story. Moses going up the mountain during the battle with the Amalekites, holding up the staff of God while the people battled down below. Matthew is drawing our attention to this fact because Jesus goes up the mountain to pray on behalf of the disciples. He intercedes between the people like Moses. He prays for the disciples down below who are struggling against the storm. They don't know it. They're all alone in the boat. And it would have been natural to conclude that it was just them against the storm. It would have been difficult to see beyond the edges of the boat. But Matthew's readers see. They see that Jesus is busy interceding on behalf of the disciples. Meanwhile, the disciples down below had contended with the storm for some six to eight hours. They had encountered a headwind and the boat was being tossed by the waves. The word used here is often used to indicate a test or a trial. And sometimes even to indicate torment. And so the situation was getting bad. They were being tested by a trial at sea, tormented by the wind and the waves. Just imagine yourself in the boat beside the disciples, rowing over the swells, with the wind howling overhead, nearing the point of exhaustion, in the midst of the storm, and with the fear rising, and their hope waning, Jesus comes to them in the storm. Isn't it amazing, brothers and sisters, the Son of God does not leave them to struggle alone, but He goes out to them in the midst of the storm. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, after interceding on behalf of the disciples, goes out to the boat, walking on the water. For the Jewish Christian reader, the book of Matthew, reading the book of Matthew, the power that Jesus displays over the water was a clear sign of His divinity. It was the Lord who had opened up the sea and sent the rain that had destroyed the world with the flood. Job even says explicitly that God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. When Jesus walked on the water, he displayed power over the elements. And by this act, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ shows that he was God's son. He confirms what we read in Matthew 3, where God the Father had declared, This is my beloved son. But is that what the disciples initially see as they struggle against the fierce wind and the surging waves? They look out through the darkness and they see the image of our Lord and Savior. But they wonder how it would be possible. They're five kilometers from the shore. How is it possible that a man of flesh and blood could be walking on the water? And as a result, they conclude that it must be a ghost. And even though the image they see is that of Jesus, they cry out in fear because in their minds, a ghost was something to be feared. Something sinister. And as a result, when Jesus approaches the boat, the disciples cry out. But immediately, Jesus reassures them. Saying... Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And again, the Jewish readers would have recognized this statement of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is I. The Greek equivalent of the Hebrew. I am. Jesus is declaring to his disciples that he is God. Take heart. I am. I am is the way the Lord identified himself to Moses. When Moses had asked who he should tell the people had sent him, Jesus takes that name. Do not be afraid, Jesus is saying. Take heart, I am God. Look, I'm walking on the sea. If that isn't clear enough to convince you, then listen up. I am. In other words, I am the Son of God. So you have nothing to fear. This was the declaration of the faithful covenant God who had delivered his people from slavery, who had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians by bringing them through the Red Sea on dry ground. Jesus is saying, that's me. I am the great I am. And I will deliver you from this storm so that you have nothing to be afraid of. And that brings us to our second point, congregation. The disciples' confession of the Son of God. Peter makes the connection. He calls Him Lord. The Hebrew equivalent to the word used here refers to Yahweh, the covenant God. This is a confession that Jesus was the I Am that He claimed to be. His response is, if it is you. This was not a statement of doubt. Peter had just addressed him as Lord. The statement has the meaning of since it is you. And so Peter's statement is a statement of faith. If it is you, the I am, since you are God, command me to come to you on the water. And in response to Peter's confession, Jesus says, come. Jesus, the Son of God, was the Lord of the sea. He was able to sustain Peter as he walked Out in faith. And so Peter steps over the edge of the boat. And he places his feet upon the water. As if it were solid ground. And with his eyes fixed on Jesus. He begins to walk up and down the swelling waves. With the wind howling through his hair. One step after another. He goes towards his Lord. Walking upon the water. But something Changes. Peter's faith does not sustain him. Our reading says that when he saw the wind, his fear got the better of him. He faltered in the face of the storm and he begins to sink. Beloved, at this point we might think Peter is a failure at faith. But is that the conclusion we should make? No, beloved. He shows himself to be what we are. Sinful human beings, wrought with weakness and shortcomings. It's so easy for our gaze to be diverted from the one who can sustain us through the storms of this life to focus on our own fear. And doesn't it happen to us all? When we place our faith in the Son of God, God. He can sustain us in life's trials, but how often don't we shrink back under our own fear? I can't bear the thought of never having another drink, another go at the slot machine, another peek at those movies on the internet. I know I should stand up for the honor of the Lord's name, but what will my classmates, my peers, and my colleagues think? I know I should give cheerfully, but there's so many bills. What if I can't make ends meet at the end of the month? And so Peter falters in the face of his fear, like we all do. But in the midst of Peter's faltering faith, he does one thing right. He cries out, Lord save me. Jesus, the Son of God, had the power to save him. And he looked to Jesus for his salvation. And what does our Savior do? He reaches out his hand and he pulls Peter safely into the boat. In spite of his weakness of faith, Jesus saves him. But he challenges him. Why? Why did you doubt? As he challenges us, why doubt? After seeing Jesus walk on the water... And after leaping out of the boat to rise above the storm, why did Peter doubt who Jesus was? He knew that Jesus was the Son of God. Yet his faith fell short. But isn't that the way it works in this sinful world, even among God's people? It's a reminder that our confidence cannot rest in our own faith as if we merit salvation because of our own personal walk of faith. but Lord's Day 23 says in question and answer 61, not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith. Rather, true faith rests upon the worthiness of the Son of God. He didn't falter. He pulled Peter safely into the boat. And he calms the storm. And this brings us to our final point. Our confidence in the Son of God. So why does it matter that we acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God? When Jesus asks the disciples in Matthew 16 who they thought he was, Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The confession that Jesus is the Son of God is a confession of faith. It is a confession that was not revealed by man, but by God. God is busy working faith in our lives. It's what 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, teaches us. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Jesus uses a trial to reveal that He was the Son of God so that His disciples would place their faith and trust in Him. He worked this faith through the trial that He sent at sea Sometimes the most penetrating lessons are the ones we learn in the midst of our trials and struggles. And during this trial, Jesus reveals to the disciples that he was indeed the Son of God. When we are brought to this confession, this truth, then we must count ourselves truly blessed. It means that Jesus, the Son of God, is busy revealing himself to us, declaring himself to be our Savior Sometimes we wonder why the Lord allows trials in our lives. But sometimes trials can be a blessing that help me see more clearly that Jesus, the Son of God, is at work in my life. And we can be confident that Jesus does not leave us to fend for ourselves in the storm. He intercedes for us like he did on the mountain for his disciples. When we are in the boat, fighting the wind and the waves, we don't always see it. But Romans 8.34 reminds us, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Because we are unable to overcome the trials of this life in our own strength. Jesus went to the cross suffering the greatest trial ever experienced by a man. He was punished for our sin so that those in the boat struggling against the wind and the waves could count on him to defend and preserve him. He was able to accomplish this only because he was the Son of God. Jesus, being the Son of God, gives us confidence that even though I might falter in the midst of the storm, when I cry out to him, He will save me. And when it becomes too much, I can be confident that He will pull me safely into the boat. The disciples took what they had learned to heart. From their writing, we can see that they had indeed learned the lesson. James encourages those that seek something from the Lord to do so with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Believe that the Son of God can answer your prayer. After, he, after all, He could walk upon the waves of the sea. He does not leave you on your own, but intercedes for you. And Peter says to us in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Beloved, Peter says, Do not be surprised by fiery trials. Some would have you believe it's all going to be a bed of roses. But he had been there on the wind and the waves he learned that Jesus was the son of God and what was his advice we find it a few verses further in verse 19 therefore let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good trials help us to place our trust where it belongs in our lord and savior Jesus Christ listen to how peter speaks about trials In the beginning of his letter, which is addressed to the elect, God's people. 1 Peter 1 says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The trials that we face are refining us so that we can confess with with the disciples in the boat that Jesus is the Son of God, even though we may not have seen him. And by this confession... We rejoice not only in the midst of the trial, but we can count ourselves blessed that by these trials we have come to know God's one and only Son. For to have Christ revealed to you is to overcome the greatest storm we will ever face in this life, our sin and misery. And when we cry out in our sin and Christ lifts us safely into the boat, our response can only be one thing, beloved. Praise. For the Son of God has secured for us, for you and for me, the salvation of our souls. And we can be confident in Him that we will receive the goal of our faith. Beloved, Peter confesses his faith that Jesus is the Son of God. And in that moment of certainty, he steps out of the boat, rising above the adversity of the storm. And with his eyes fixed on Jesus, he walks on the water. And yet, when his gaze shifts from the Son of God to the storm winds of the sea, he sinks. But he was not lost. That is because the Son of God does not falter like sinful human beings. As a result, we have reason to be confident in the Son of God. For when we fail to keep our eyes firmly fixed on our Lord and Savior and fall into sin, He can deliver us and bring us safely into the boat. He overcame the trial of the cross, conquering sin and death for His people. That is why I can be confident in the face of adversity. That is why you can be confident in the face of adversity. When I confess that Jesus is the Son of God and I cry out to Him, then he is my Savior and he will not let me drown in the sea of my trouble. Amen.